today. Uh, if you would take your Bible and open to Romans chapter 5, we're going to be uh, covering a very, very important uh, section of uh, the Word today as we're talking about chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. And it will help if I get my notes out. That will make the sermon a lot better. But probably longer, actually. But uh, I'm going to read to us from verses 12 through 14. But before I do, I wanted to make an announcement. There was a uh, situation that arose uh, during Sunday school. Richard Keene's mom, um, he, Richard was in our Sunday school class and received a phone call. And uh, there was something going on with Beulah medically. And so uh, he cut out and is with her right now. I don't know any more details than what I've already told you. But we want to pray for that situation and pray for Beulah and, uh, and for Richard as he deals with that and the EMTs and others that are involved. But you've got your Bible open. I'm going to read these verses and then we will go to the Lord together in prayer. Chapter 5, starting verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and uh, we worship you. We take time from our normal schedule of the week, normal work schedule, normal duties, normal everyday things that we do, and we take time out to be here together, to worship you, to honor you, to declare that you alone are God and there is none like you. So we bow down to you at this time, submitted to you. And we praise you for what you have done for us in Christ. We praise you for the fact that we get to come into your presence. We get to talk to you and you hear us and you listen and you care. You answer prayer. And that's because of what Christ has done. We get to be those who are forgiven of our sins. We have right standing before you because of what Christ has done. We have peace with you because of what Christ has done. And so we praise you. For Christ. We praise you also that you've given us your word, inspired by your Holy Spirit, written by human authors, preserved for us over the millennia, so that we can read it and we can hear from you. We don't have to philosophize our way to you, we don't have to ponder and wonder and, and scratch our heads. We get to read your word. And so we praise you that we have your word in front of us and that we have this time together to study it. I pray that you would work in us even this morning by your spirit as as your word is open before us and as we discuss its contents. May you be active in our hearts. May you be at work to change us, to conform us to the image of your son. May you be honored in this time and may we be blessed And Father, we think of Beulah, 
We think of Richard and pray that you would work in that situation. I don't know any more details, but it sounds very startling and scary. Sounds dangerous. And so I pray that you would bless Beulah and her body. Pray that EMTs would would know well how to assess her her situation and, and address it. She may be at the ER now. I, I don't have any idea, but I, I pray that you would work in that context where medical personnel would be able to see what the problem is and address it accurately and that her body would respond well, that she would uh, recover, recover strength. I pray that you would bless her physically, and I pray that as she's going through that, you would comfort Richard and her. And through it all, Father, I pray that their eyes would be fixed on you. I pray that they they would not be so distracted by failing health or a medical emergency that they would that they would despair. I pray that their eyes would be fixed on you. I pray that you'd bless them even in the midst of this difficulty. Father, we submit ourselves to you and we look forward to what you have for us today and we ask that you would bless even in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. We've talked before about reading the last page of a book before you've read the rest of it and I have choice words for such people and they shouldn't do that. You've got to trust the author, right? That's what I tell my kids all the time. Trust the storyteller to tell the story. You don't have to fast forward. You don't have to go to the end. And Part of the reason I say that is because I love stories and I love to read, for one, and I think it ruins the whole thing. And the reason that it ruins the whole thing is because when you're reading a story, you've got to have conflict of some sort or there isn't really a plot. You've got to have some sort of bad guy or bad situation. You've got to have some sort of difficulty that, that the characters involved are going through or else the resolution at the end is meaningless. And so in my mind, if you go straight to the resolution, you don't know what's being resolved. And so you get about you know, some tiny percentage of enjoyment out of that resolution since you didn't go through the suffering with the characters. You didn't go through the difficulty and you didn't develop an intense dislike for that bad guy, the character who is the, uh, the antagonist in the, in the story. It's a little bit like our situation today. We have been going through and dealing with some, some deep issues and some of them are very dark particularly as we uh, started in the middle of chapter 1 and we're moving from there it was it was dark week after week after week after week as we were as we were reading Paul's explanation about about sin in the world and man's condition and how we got that way and what it means for us etc cetera, etc cetera. and we thought wouldn't it be great just to jump to chapter 8 already you know where we could rejoice for a while and we can dance around and we can we can be happy with the resolution but if we do that if we do that, then we're, we're not experiencing the full resolution of what Paul is bringing together. And so we don't want to do that. We want to, we want to address every uh, aspect of what Paul is talking about here. And in our passage today, in chapter 5, it's about death and sin and judgment. And already you're thinking, come on, chapter 8, come on death and sin and judgment again, right? We might be tempted to jump to a happier place. And even in chapter 5, even in this chapter with these verses that we're looking at, we might be tempted to leap down to verse 18. That's where the really great news starts to be spelled out for us. Down in verse 18 and 
and in that area. But you'll notice that our passage isn't uh, broken up that way, at least as I've presented it. We're doing 12 through 14, but uh, we're going to hold off on 18 for the time being because we need to hear the plot. We need to hear the difficulty. We need to experience the conflict and the, the problem and, and deal with that as we're going through chapter 5. And so what, what Paul is doing is he's transitioning a little bit here in uh, verse 12, and he's going to introduce an analogy where he's com- comparing two things, and he's saying this thing is sets up an analogy, sets up categories by which we can understand this second thing. And so we read in our passage here, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, and then probably your Bible has a little hyphen right there, a little dash. And then the next part of the sentence doesn't read like anything from the beginning of that sentence. You're waiting for him to finish the sentence. Just as this, so also this. You're waiting, you're anticipating, and that's not what he does. He gets sidetracked. He's got to explain. He's, he, he says some stuff, and then he's like, oh, wait, I can't finish that. I've got to explain all the stuff that I said in the first part, right? It's a, there is a technical term for what he's done here. It's a figure of speech called anakaluthon. It just means he, he kind of took a rabbit trail. Is really kind of what that means. And, and that's what he does. And that's, that's why your translation probably has a dash there, right? Just as these things, dash, and then he explains what these things are, but he has not yet told us, so also he has not yet filled in the second part of his analogy. He doesn't do that until later on. And so today what we're going to do is work through this first part of his analogy that he's, that he's talking about, and I'll tell you, it's not all that encouraging. This is the dark part of the plot. This is the part where you're tempted to skip ahead to where the bad guy gets defeated. Because he starts talking initially about Adam's death and us. Adam's death and us. First of all, if you remember uh, what he says here, he says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. The connection between death and sin. For those who've read their Bible, for those who know the teaching of God, know that those two things are connected closely together. All the way back in the garden, even in chapter 2 of Genesis, the, the second chapter of the whole book, you've got this connection being made between death and and sin, you have a warning of death given all the way back in Genesis chapter two, where where uh, God says to man, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So all the way from the beginning, we know there's a warning about sin resulting in death. And of course, we know the story. Chapter three happens and what they take of that the, the fruit of that tree that they were forbidden from doing so, and they eat of that fruit, and what happens? They die. And you can continue on and look at the genealogies that come immediately following that, uh, following that section of Genesis. And it's interesting because it says so-and-so was born, lived this many years, had these children, and died. 
So-and-so was born, lived these many years, had these children, and died, and died, and died, and died. And it's like he's driving home for us that death is not a natural part of life. It's not the way it ought to be. Death is the result of sin. It's the result of sin. And so he... We call to mind the warning about death that, that Paul is assuming we understand here back in Romans chapter 5. And he discusses the entrance of death by sin. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death was not intended to be a part of this world. It was not a natural part of our life. It, we weren't made to live 80, 90, 100 years and then die. We were made to live and to continue to live. And it wasn't until man introduced sin into the picture and then death enters the picture that we begin to die. Now, unfortunately for us, it was the very first man who introduced sin into the picture. And so we have the entrance of death by sin and death Uh, comes into this life, and now we know that it's not just the occasional person who experiences death, right? I heard someone say at our conference uh, just just the other week that, you you, you know, you've heard that it said there's nothing guaranteed except death and taxes, but you can skip out on taxes, right? Death is sure. That's the world we live in, and that's the condition we find ourselves in, and it is the result of of sin and, and the result for all of us, as he says in, down in verse 14, is the reign of death in all of us. The reign of death in all of us. Not R-A-I-N, but the, the kingship, the reigning of death in all of us. Down in verse 14, look what it says. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. We, we live in a context now where there are a lot of things we fear in life, but the ultimate enemy, the ultimate fear... And the one shared by essentially all is the fear of death. Death will come and claim us. It's not a natural part of our condition, but it is an essential or a, it's an ever-present part of our condition that we find ourselves in now that we will die. We face death because death reigns over us. So there's the reign of death in all. So I said this was going to be the dark part of the plot. This was going to be the conflict. And sure enough, when we talk about Adam's death and us, we're talking about that point in the conflict. But it gets worse because he talks about Adam's sin and us. The death is the the result. Death is the consequence. Death is what happens because of the cause, which is sin. And so we want to talk about Adam's sin and us. First of all, Adam introduced sin. Sin came into the world through one man. He brought it into our experience, our existence. This isn't talking about the sin of Satan and, and how sin already existed in that sense with, with, uh, with Satan. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about sin in the human experience as a part of what we are, as a part of what we know. We have been created by a holy and good God who, who made us to have relationship with him, who made us to be worshipers of him, who made us to reflect and be his images, his image bearers in this world. 
That's what he made us to be. And so we are to represent him everywhere we go. We are to represent him upon earth. And, and he even gave the task to you know, the first man and the first woman to, to go and be fruitful and multiply and f- fill the earth and rule over it and subdue it. They're to, they're to reign and have authority over the earth to, to be his representatives on the earth, his image bearers on the earth. And it doesn't take long before rebellion enters that picture. And the image bearer becomes the rebel instead. Becomes the one who is fighting against God. Who is running from and hiding from God. Who begins to blame God for his problems. When when God confronts the man with his sin, he says, well, it was this woman that you gave me. Blaming the woman and blaming God. You gave me this woman. Had you done a better job, had you created a better helper for me, we would be fine. It's her fault. It's your fault because you made her. And so we have the entrance of sin into the picture, and thus we have not only the introduction of sin, but the consequence to us all, sin into the world through one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The consequence wasn't just for Adam himself. It wasn't just for Adam and Eve. It was for all of their offspring. It was for all those who would be born from Adam. They would be those who bear that consequence of sin. It spread to all. So Adam sinned, and we get the death. He did too. But it spreads to all. And Paul makes that very clear. Sin entered through him, and it spread to all. That's the context in which we find ourselves. That's the the conflict of the plot. We have relatives who have died. We have relatives who are sick and may die soon. We will die. And that's the plot. That's the conflict. That's the difficulty. That's the place where we live is that we deal with this consequence of sin. And he says this consequence of sin goes to all. It spreads to all men. To all. Each of us. Even the innocent. Even those who who have not uh, shaken their fist in God's face still face death. That's where we find ourselves in the plot. So you may ask the question, why does the death spread to all men, including babies, including even those in the womb? How could death spread to them? He says... Death spread to all men because all sinned. So we move to a discussion of our participation in sin. Our participation in sin. To help understand this, to help explain the direction I think Paul is going with this, I want to call your attention to a picture that you've probably seen, even if you don't know the details of the Yalta Conference uh, at the end of World War II. There's a picture of these three men 
And uh, they're sitting there together, and they're very different men. And they, sometimes it looks like they're like chuckling and laughing together. Uh, but it was, it was two, uh, it, it was these three men. You have Franklin Delano Roosevelt from the U.S. He was represented. You have uh, Winston Churchill. He was sitting there. And you had Joseph Stalin. And you've got the big three, they're called. They're coming together at the end, towards the end of World War II, and uh, they have a plan. Together, they're going to concoct a way, basically, to, to divide Europe for how, how Europe is going to look going forward. Because the Germans are about to be defeated. They're about to uh, be uh, no longer an issue, no longer a world power in that area. So what are they going to do? Who's going to have influence over Europe? Who's going to have influence over what parts of Europe? So the three of them come together. And they have this meeting and they decide the fate of Europe, essentially. And these three guys get to make decisions about what's going to happen in the future of Europe. And, and of course, the decisions that they made, the things that they agreed upon when they kind of gerrymandered Europe together, influenced Europe for decades. In fact, set the pieces in place for the Cold War, which would influence world events for decades to come. And so you had this decision that three men made that would affect the rest of the 20th century. And in fact, if you go to Europe today, you can see the influence of these decisions even now. My favorite, uh, not my favorite, one of the most beautiful cities in the world that I've ever seen is Prague. And if you go to certain parts of Prague, it's just gorgeous. You expect a knight in armor with a sword to become riding down the street. It's just amazing. Cobblestone streets and castles and beauty everywhere. And then you drive to a different part of the city, and it looks like you're in 1970s Moscow because of the Yalta Agreement. And so... We have decisions made by representatives. You have decisions made by particular people that had impact on that whole part of the world, even until today. And that helps us understand, I think, what Paul is talking about here when he says, death spread to all men because all sinned. He's talking about that sort of representative relationship that when those three made decisions together, it bound their nations. It bound all of Europe because of the decisions that they made. The official language or term that we use for that is federal headship. It's the con concept of one head, one representative, acting, making decisions, doing things that will have consequences for all of those who are represented by that head, for all of those who are within that family, as it were. All of those who come under him are considered to have made the same agreement so that it might be said that we agreed with Great Britain and the Soviet Union about how Europe was to be divided up. I wasn't there. I wasn't even born. And even those who were alive at that time, they would be considered to have made that agreement because of federal headship, because they represent us and the actions that they take have impact on the people they represent. And so one representative person's guilt or righteousness or actions are considered by God to be the guilt or righteousness or actions 
of all of those he or she represents. That's the notion of federal headship. And that's the basic way the Bible is understands our relationship to one another. In other words, all of those in Adam are considered to be guilty with him. His righteousness, or in this case, his lack of righteousness, is considered to be their lack of righteousness. His actions are considered to be their actions. That's why he can say in verse 12, death spread to all men because all sinned. All sinned, and so death spread to all. They haven't only become corrupt. It's not only that they have become corrupt in their nature. That's true, of course. They've become corrupt in their nature. But it's not only that. Nor can we say that death only comes to those who actually, personally sinned in their own actions. We're painfully aware of the reality of infants or even babies in the womb dying. And they obviously have not, in their own choice, of their own actions, in their own life, committed sins. They never sinned themselves, yet they bear the penalty, which is death. And Paul can still argue that they sinned. Death spread to all men because all sinned. He actually addresses that reality in verse 14. Look down at verse 14 once again. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. He envisions a time, because we understand that twice now already Paul has made the argument that sin is not counted where there is no law. So he says that in our passage and then back in chapter 4 and verse 15, he says the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So he's, he's considering a time when there was no law before the law had been given, before Moses. And what does he say about that time? Well, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Death reigned even during that time before the law had been given. How can that be? If death is the consequence, the result of sin, how can it be that death reigns even from Adam to Moses before the law had been given? And he says, even over those whose sinning was not like the trespass of Adam. What does he mean by that? Well, this is what I think he means. Adam had specific instructions from God. Don't eat from the fruit of that tree. You can eat from the fruit of any other tree. Don't eat from the fruit of that tree. He had specific instructions and the attendant warning about what would happen if he did so. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. He had specific instructions. And of course, we know how Adam did with those instructions. He ate of the fruit of that tree and thus he died and inherited what we inherit from him. But the people between Adam and Moses, they were barred from that place. There was a, an angel with a sword standing guard at the garden so that there was no way even to get back in, possibly to climb that tree and take that fruit. They didn't have access 
They didn't have the, they didn't have the instruction from God. Don't eat from the fruit of that tree. They didn't have those explicit instructions. And yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses. What law had they broken? He says, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the trespass of Adam. Adam had instructions, ignored those instructions, and disobeyed God. All of the people, and thus he inherited death, the people between Adam and Moses didn't have those instructions. They didn't have explicit instruction from God on what to do. So there was no instruction for them to disobey. So why did they die? Because death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. The answer is federal headship. I think federal headship is the only orthodox way to answer that question. In other words, we sinned in Adam. So he can say, death spread to all men, verse 12, because all sinned. Not actively, not, of, not, not practically in our own lives. We didn't exist. But since he was our federal representative, since he was our head, since he was at the Yalta conference making a decision that would affect us, in Adam we sinned. In Adam all sinned. His action of breaking God's command in the garden is counted as our action of breaking God's command in the garden because we are in him. He's our federal head. The consequence is that all die in Adam because all sinned in Adam. The people living and dying between Adam and Moses who didn't have the explicit commands of God to obey or disobey, they didn't sin like Adam sinned. They sinned when Adam sinned. And so Paul could say of them, death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, I want to pause for a second and think about application. How does this apply to us? We are all born sinners who are guilty before God because we are born in Adam. The natural man is not only guilty before God because of his sinful actions, though that's true as far as it goes. We're guilty because we've sinned against God. We, because of our own personal sinful actions against God, that is certainly true, but, but that's not the only thing that's true. Also, the natural man is not only guilty before God because of the sinful corruption in his heart, his sin nature, though that is certainly true also. No, even without those, the natural man would be guilty before God because he is counted in Adam and thus participated in Adam's first rebellion in the garden. He sinned in Adam. And so the application for us at this point isn't really an action, something that we are to go and do, something, uh, something like that that we're to stop doing. The application is for us to understand, to understand the depth of the conflict in our plot, to realize a truth that is true for every human being. Sometimes an application is to go and do this thing or to stop doing this thing. And sometimes an application is to understand. 
And if we will think about what it means for us to have sinned in Adam, that we, we look back on Adam and we, we want to kick him in the shins. We, we wonder why he did what he did, why he made the choice that he made. How could he rebel against God that he had such a relationship with? We marvel at the guilt that he incurred upon himself. And we shake our heads that he incurred that for us. Paul says, we sinned. We would have done no better than Adam did. He was without sin. He was no doubt smarter than us. He knew God and walked with him. And he, our best possible representative, we want to kick him in the shins. We want to, we want to call him a dirty so-and-so. We want to be mad at him. And rightfully so. But we would have, would we have done any better? He's the best possible representative of us. And he sinned. And he was our federal head. So when he sinned, we sinned. So that's verses 12 through 14. Now that we have waded into the conflict of the plot, now that we've felt the darkness and I pray we feel the weight of what it means that we are guilty, not just because of our own actions that we've practically done in our lives, though we've certainly committed sins that make us guilty. Amen. Not only are we guilty because of this corruption that we have within us that causes us to do those things, this sin nature that we have, this bent towards evil. We're guilty because of that too. But we were guilty from the start in Adam because he, our federal representative, he, our head, sinned. And thus we sinned with him. But now that we've waded through that, we can flip to the end a little bit. We can look at verse 18. At, at the, well, before we turn to, before we look down at verse 18, notice what he says. I've not, I've not read it to us yet. At the end of verse 14, he mentions Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. The great news, the amazing news, the, the, the best news is that Adam is not the only possible federal head. He's not the only one making decisions and doing actions and obtaining guilt or righteousness. There's a second one. He's a type of the one who was to come. He's in the same way, using this similar categories that Adam sinned and incurred condemnation and brought death. So there is another. The one who was to come. And so we read down in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. You can see that Paul is picking up what he started in verse 12 again. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So we want to talk about Adam's successor and us. Adam's successor, because Adam was a type of the one who was to come. There was another one who was to come after him who would also be a federal head, who would follow these same categories and yet with vastly different results. For example, one act of righteousness 
by Christ is what he leads with. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. The ministry of Christ is a ministry of righteousness. His life of obedience was a life of righteousness. He obeyed every command of the Father. He obeyed every bit of the law. Jesus says in John chapter 6 and verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And that's what he accomplishes. He does the will of his Father. He obeys always the will of his Father. He spoke every word that God gave him to speak. What he heard from the Father, that's what he said. He was perfectly obedient. He did exactly as God told him to do. He he performed precisely the task God gave him to do. His life was one of perfect righteousness. And his death was one of righteousness as well. Because he bore God's righteous penalty that sinners deserved. So not only did he obey, but he also stood in the place of the sinner in the requirement of the law. The law gave stipulations. Disobedience results in this. And so Jesus obeyed and yet went to the portion of the law that says disobedience results in this and took that on himself also. Paying the righteous requirement of the law. He obeyed the law and he made full payment for disobedience to the law. Every righteous requirement of the law, positive and negative, was met by Christ. Was met in him. He paid that. And so Paul can say, one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. And so we have one act of righteousness by Christ. And we have an inheritance of justification that is ours in Christ. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification. We've talked extensively about justification, but it is ours because of what Christ did. Because of his obedience. And if you will turn for a moment over to chapter 8 of Romans. This one act of righteousness leads to justification for us. And Paul's going to say in chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The righteous requirement of the law is not only fulfilled in him, that's not what Paul said in 8.3 and 8.4. He says it is fulfilled in us. That's justification. His record, we could understand if it said the righteous requirement of the law was fulfilled in him or by him or in his life or with respect to him. But he says the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. It applies to us. And that's justification. This is federal headship once again. The righteousness and the actions of Christ are imputed to us. Just like the disobedience and the actions of Adam had been imputed to us. 
He's established the categories of imputation. He's established the categories of federal headship. Action and consequence that was ours because we were born in Adam. And now there is new action, a new consequence because we are reborn. We are born again, born anew into Christ. So he becomes our federal head. Whereas Paul could say that all sinned in Adam and thus received condemnation and death in Christ is imputed to us his righteousness, justification from him, and finally life for all who are in Christ. Look at 18 again. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Eternal life. Death has been removed. The death that matters has been removed. We still face death in this body. Coming to Christ, of course, doesn't alleviate that, doesn't remove that. This physical death that we still experience because we were born in Adam. We still inherit that from Adam. And yet we know that that is not the final death. That is not the death that matters. That we have life in Christ. We have eternal life in Christ. And even when this body dies, and it will, we have life in Him. Continued, ongoing peace with God. Not just in the here and now. Yes, in the here and now, but not only in the here and now. We don't fear death. Removal of condemnation forever. Life that's ours in Christ. Redemption that's ours in Christ. Life, we have life because we are in Him. We inherit instead of the death that we inherited as the consequence of Adam's disobedience of his sin. Instead, from Christ, because of his obedience, because of his righteousness, we inherit justification and we inherit life. We have a new federal head. We have a new consequence in our lives. Never-ending, joy-giving, life-imparting reconciliation to God. In Christ, John would say, we have become his beloved children. These are the blessings that are ours in Christ. And so he he went to great pains to spell out for us what exactly we inherited, what we earned from Adam. And we're aware of these things practically in our lives. There's some of it that's tough, but we understand about sin. And he says, this you inherited because you were in Adam, because you're in Adam. But in Christ, in Christ, you inherit something new. You inherit righteousness, justification, and life. And so we come to our application today. Because the weight of what it means to be in Adam is heavy, and it should rest heavy upon us. We shouldn't dodge it. We shouldn't want to escape it. We, we, we shouldn't want to turn to the last page and ignore it. But once we've read it, once we've understood it, once we feel the weight, once we feel the presence, once we feel the death that is ours in Adam, it should drive us to look to Christ and to rejoice in this new new inheritance that we have. And there are some in the room, there are some in the room who are still in Adam. 
who have an inheritance for sure. And it's the inheritance of death. And it's theirs not only because of their own action, not only because of their own sin, which they have certainly committed, and not only because of the corruption that is inherent within them because of their sin nature, though that is certainly true. But it's theirs because in Adam they sinned also and thus are guilty from the beginning. And so the application for you today is to trust in Christ, to believe in Him, to receive that new inheritance that is only to be found in Him, that inheritance of righteousness because He was obedient, because He always obeyed the Father. He always did what the Father said. He always obeyed the law. He always said what the Father said. And He even bore the consequences of sin that were righteous consequences according to the law. And in Christ, you inherit all of that righteousness. In Christ, you can be justified because of what He's done. In Christ, you inherit life. And so, the application for you today, if, if, if you don't know Christ, if you're still in Adam, the application for you is to believe in Christ. And you will receive life for the death that you currently have. That's my prayer for you. That's my desire for you. For those of us who know Christ, it's important that we understand salvation in these terms. That we, not, we inherit death in Adam not only because of our own sinful behavior. You see, Paul was setting up two categories. He was, he was setting an analogy and he was going to take that analogy to explain life in Christ, to explain salvation. And so in this category, if we are all, if we all receive the penalty of death because of our own active actions only, what's the solution? Stop sinning. Stop sinning and you will have salvation. And that is no biblical doctrine. We have to understand that we are guilty, fully guilty, not only because of what we've done, not only because of our desire for evil, but because we are in Adam, we are guilty. We sinned in him. We died with him because we sinned with him. We have to understand that concept of imputation, that his guilt is imputed to us. If we don't, we start thinking, well... I'm, 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 uh, I receive death or I'm at odds with God because of the things that I do. And so the solution is clean up the things that I do, right? And that is no gospel. The only way that we can have peace with God, the only way we can be reconciled to God is by the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. Not just Christ giving me a desire to do good that I've then fan into flame and, and it grows into salvation. That's the doctrine of some. And that's no gospel. We need Christ's perfect and complete and full and accomplished righteousness imputed to us. In the same way that we were born with the guilt of Adam imputed to us. 
And if we don't understand those categories, Christians, we will not understand the gospel. We will not understand the Christian life. We will not understand what salvation is and is not. We will be confused. And so Paul takes very great pains to spell this out for us. We need to understand the profound extent of Adam's sin. And we need to understand the profound extent of the effects of Christ's redemption. In Adam, we got sin and condemnation and death. Those curses became ours simply by being born into him. But in Christ, we get righteousness and justification and life. Blessings that are ours simply by being born into him. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this salvation. We struggle to understand perhaps how one person could represent another in such a way. We struggle maybe to see that we sinned when Adam sinned. But the teaching of your word consistently is that we have a representative whose actions have wrapped us up in his consequences. And I praise you that Adam was not the last man. He was not the last Adam. Christ is the last Adam. Christ is the one who was to come. The one for whom Adam was a type. And Christ is our representative. And Christ himself obeyed. He was obedient, righteous in his life, righteous in his attitudes, in his heart in all the things that he said and all the things that he did, obeying you always and perfectly, obtaining perfect and pure righteousness in the actions of his life. And then he even bore the penalty for those who are not like him, bearing your wrath for sinners. Thus his act of righteousness is perfect and it is complete. And because of his righteousness, by one act of righteousness, the many receive justification in life. Father, I pray that every single one here would receive justification and life in Christ. I pray in Jesus' name.